Today we're finishing up our uh, series on happiness. We talked about what happiness is or isn't. We talked about happiness and our jobs and work. And today we're talking about happiness and people, happiness and others. My first instinct when I see an animal is to say hello. My first instinct when I see a person is to avoid eye contact and hope (laughs) it goes away. The reality is we can't get away from people if we want to live in society. They are everywhere. So if we can't live without them, we might as well learn to live with them. So our need to feel connected to other people, to love, to be loved, to care for people and to be cared for is a fundamental human need. And some say that it is the most powerful strength that we have as human beings. It's a crucial part of our our sense of meaning and fulfillment and joy and happiness in life. And some studies have found that those who have meaningful personal connections with people um, have less blood pressure, they sleep better, they live longer, and they have a stronger immunity from infection like colds if they have good close personal relationships. And that those who don't have close personal relationships um, have the same health risks of those who have uh, uh, obesity or who are lifelong smokers. So our relationships with others really impact our health, our mind, our emotions, our spirituality. So while relationships are such a huge part of our meaning and fulfillment and our happiness, they are a huge part of our stress and our unhappiness. People can be difficult. Linus from the Peanuts Gang said, I love mankind, it's people I can't stand. The tension of we are supposed to love people, but we just can't stand people. It's hard. And the internet and social media has kind of allowed us to uh, engage in conflict and arguments and behaviors and language that breed uh, unhealthy conflict, and we don't even have to look the person in the eye. But that we can just block them on Facebook. Sometimes we wish you could block people in real life, too. It's not as simple, though. So when someone tries to pick a fight with you, whether it's someone close to you or someone on the internet or a coworker, how do you respond? Do you tend to, what's your gut reaction? Is it to engage, to fight back? Do you get defensive, guard yourself, or do you shut down and run away? My go-to, if you're familiar with the Enneagram, I'm a nine peacemaker. My go-to is to shut down and run away and hope it goes away and hope it gets better magically. I just don't want to engage. Just the thought of conflict just makes me tense up. I'm tensing up now just thinking about it. But conflict is a part of being human. It is a reality. We cannot avoid it. So what we can do is choose how we respond to it. In Proverbs, which was written a few thousand years ago, we have some wise sayings about conflict. And the fact that these are in our collection of sayings in Proverbs show that people have been dealing with other people since humanity began. These are thousands of years old. So Proverbs 12, a fool is quick-tempered, but a wise person stays calm when insulted. A fool just hits right back. Proverbs 17, one who seeks love conceals an offense, but one who repeats it divides friends. Proverbs 20, avoiding a fight is a mark of honor. Only fools insist on quarreling. 
The reason we have so many letters in the New Testament is because a lot of people in the early churches disagreed with one another. A lot of Christians in the early churches, churches had different backgrounds, different religions, and they disagreed and they fought and they had arguments. So the letters that we have are Paul responding to those conflicts and arguments. If the early church didn't have conflict, we wouldn't have most of the New Testament. So in Galatians, Paul writes a letter to the church there in Galatia, which is um, kind of east of Greece. And Paul says, when Peter came to Antioch, I had to oppose him to his face for what he did was very wrong. What did he do that was very wrong? Peter was a Jew and Peter and some of the other Jews were refusing to have meals with people who were non-Jews. They were refusing to sit down and have table fellowship with the non-Jews. They would not sit with them in the school lunch cafeteria. And Paul says in Galatians in verse 14 that he had to call him out on it in front of everyone publicly, face to face. A few chapters later, though, in Galatians 6, Paul says, Brothers and sisters, if a person is caught doing something wrong, you who are spiritual should restore someone like this with a spirit of gentleness. Watch out for yourselves so you won't be tempted to carry each other's burdens and so you will fulfill the law of Christ. Don't just point out someone's problem, what they did wrong, but help them carry the problem and do it in a spirit of gentleness. That is so hard to find a way to approach conflict with a spirit of gentleness and kindness and understanding, yet still call out something that may be wrong, that may be uh, something that needs to be corrected. How do we do that? The conflict is unavoidable. If we choose a wise way to respond, the possibility of that conflict leading to uh, closer relationships, more intimacy, growth is good. If we choose to respond in an unwise way, then that conflict can just lead to more conflict and more stress and broken relationships. So when it comes to dealing with difficult people, especially sometimes those we don't know well, sometimes those we do, Paul says in, an, in another letter, have nothing to do with stupid and senseless controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. He's talking about primarily stupid controversies about the Bible. Don't even get into stupid controversies and arguments about what the Bible says. Man, I wish church people would follow that. We as Christians... The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kindly to everyone, an apt teacher, patient, correcting opponents with gentleness. And God may perhaps grant that they will repent and come to know the truth. <laughs> Maybe if we're gentle with them, God will show them that they're wrong. But our job, Paul says, is to be gentle, to be kind, to be understanding in our conflicts. In Matthew 5, Jesus says, you've heard that murder is wrong. I'm telling you that any display of violent public anger is just as wrong, just as evil. And then if, a few verses later, he says that how we relate to one another is how we relate to God. They are connected. So if we treat our brother or sister with this violent public lashing out of anger, that's essentially how we're treating God. So how we 
handle conflict and engage with one another is a very spiritual thing, very spiritual thing. Dr. John Gottman is a worldwide expert on marriage and relationships, and he's coined this phrase, the four horsemen of the apocalypse for marriage, for relationships. He said these four things, if they're evident in relationships, it's like the end of the world for them. So I'm going to talk through a few of these and help us, give us some tools to deal with some of the conflict. These apply to marriage, it applies to romantic relationships, to coworkers, to friends, to family, parents, kid dynamics, all of these. He said the first horseman of the apocalypse for relationships is criticism. Criticism says it takes the problem between you and another person and it makes it about the person's character. So things like you always or you never, it's criticism. Criticism says you always talk about yourself. Why are you always so selfish? The response to the criticism, the antidote that Dr. Gottman says is to make it about me. I'm feeling left out of our talk tonight and I need to vent. Can we please talk about my day? <laughs> That's so sweet and gentle. <laughs> you always, you never, instead flip it around and say, I'm feeling this. I think I need this right now. Make it about you, not about the other person. The second thing is uh, contempt. Contempt is behavior nonverbal and verbal, that kind of puts you on higher ground, your partner. It's behaviors that say, you're less than me. What you're saying is not as important. Intent looks like sarcasm, cynicism, name-calling, eye-rolling, sneering, mockery, and hostile humor. I am really good at the sarcasm one. I am an expert at the sarcasm. Dr. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> she is plotting. Mm, preach. Not proud of it. <laughs> Gottman says that when he sees contempt in relationships, it's the surest sign of divorce, that divorce is imminent. He says contempt is the most dangerous thing you can have in a relationship. There are just little subtle ways of saying you are not important right now. You don't matter right now. It'd be as simple as an eye roll. So he says the antidote to this is to do a lot of little things that are positive, that show love, that show respect. He says for every one negative instance of contempt, try to have five good positive moments of kindness and love and respect so that the overall environment that you're creating is self mutual respect and self-respect. So that those one moments when they do happen, it doesn't define your relationship. He gives an example of contempt. You forgot to load the dishwasher again? Ugh, you are so incredibly lazy. Rolls eyes. Antidote. I know you've been really busy lately, but could you please remember to load the dishwasher when I work late? It means a lot to me. Simple as that and all the problems are solved, right? how we talk, the words we use, the tone of voice, whether we make it about the other person or about what we are feeling and needing, makes a huge difference in our relationships. Another one, I just thought of this. I remember hearing from a couple who got divorced. One of the, the 
I don't remember if it was uh, who, if it was the husband or the wife. They said the, the moment I knew we were getting a divorce was when my spouse stopped putting my toothbrush out for the night. Every night before they go to bed, they'd have a routine where they, they'd bring the toothbrush out for the spouse. So that here you go, you can brush your teeth for years. So the moment that stopped is I knew it was over. Those little moments content are huge. They seem so small, but they are huge. So the little moments of kindness and of respect and of love are also huge. And make sure the other person isn't the only one doing the good little moments. Make sure you are contributing to those little moments of kindness and respect. I'm really good at letting Kylie take most of those. Those matter. They're huge. Little moments. Gratitude. Little moments of thank you. Little moments of I'm thankful for you. Thanks for doing that. Fourth, or the third thing Dr. Gottman says is defensiveness. Defensiveness is really a way of blaming the other person. And when you are criticized, you feel attacked. A lot of times our gut says go in defense mode and make it about the other person. Defensiveness is saying the problem is you, the problem is not me. So the antidote, Dr. Gottman says, is even if you haven't been the source of all of the conflict, even if you haven't done all that your partner or the other person says that you've done, if you've done something wrong, anything wrong, whatever it is, own up to it. Do the George Costanza thing where it's not you, it's me. Acknowledge the part that is you, even if it's small. And that'll lessen the defensiveness and help you move toward a more productive conflict. The fourth thing that he says we do is stonewalling. Stonewalling is when you feel so overwhelmed, the emotions are high, you feel attacked, and your body just wants to shut down. You don't know what to do, you don't know what to say, you just kind of freeze like a deer in the headlights. <laughs> this is my go-to reaction in conflict. <laughs> and part of that goes into defensiveness. Because if I freeze like a deer in the headlights, like Jurassic Park, don't move when the T- maybe the T-Rex won't see me <laughs> if I don't move. <laughs> Kylie's not a T-Rex, no. <laughs> I know what you're thinking. When we freeze, when we don't want to engage, I find myself a lot of times going into this pity mode. I just freeze and I curl up and I say, <laughs> I just get into this, well, I didn't mean to. And I just want to sulk down and I want to escape and I want to get away and I want it to all be better. Let's just say sorry, let's just say sorry and move on. It's not helpful. So when we have those moments of being, feeling completely overwhelmed, you see in all of these scenarios, the, the fight or flight, in all of these scenarios, our animal brain is activating. Sometimes we go into fight back, and sometimes we just want to run away, defend ourselves, and escape. 
So when we feel overwhelmed and we know that if we say anything, we're just going to explode, we're going to say something angry, we're going to say something that we will regret later, that will be incredibly hurtful. He says, Dr. Gottman, in those moments, say, I'm sorry to interrupt you, so gentle, but I'm feeling overwhelmed, I need to take a break. Can you give me 20 minutes and then we can talk? Notice he doesn't say, just shout out and interrupt. Just give me 20 minutes. Get away from me for 20 minutes. <laughs> Gentleness, Paul says. I'm sorry, but can you please, I, I'm feeling so overwhelmed right now. I just need a few minutes. And Dr. Gottman says, in those 20 minutes, don't go into the room and think about how horrible the person is. <laughs> that is not productive. In that 20 minutes, go take a walk. Go listen to music. Go pray. Go meditate. Do something that can get you out of your animal brain of fight or flight and back into the present moment and the reality so you can move forward with the conversation in a healthy way. So how do we get to the point where we can actually do this and respond in these ways? Because it's hard to think about all this stuff in the moment. We think we need to change how we see conflict and uh, our perspective causing the conflict. The Jewish Talmud it's a fascinating line. It says, we don't see things as they are. We see them as we are. That everything that we see is filtered through our own experiences throughout our lives, our own perceptions, our own worldviews, our own hurts, our own fears, our own insecurities. So that we may be looking at the same thing, but we have different lenses that we're looking through. So it looks different. The source of the conflict looks different to you than it does to me. We can see this play out in the real world just by looking at this dress. Who sees a gold and white dress? Who sees a blue and black dress? Y'all crazy. Right? <laughs> what? Well, I literally cannot see blue and black. You are crazy. The dress, the actual dress, is blue and black. It's not what I see. I see gold and white. Yeah, right. You're, you're right. I'm wrong. This is exactly how we can see conflicts. Because we have different lenses. Our brain is processing it differently. My brain is not processing the same colors, the blue and black. So we need to acknowledge that we're not seeing things the same way. So when I look into a, into a conflict, I'm seeing it through the lens of all of my past, my experiences, my hurt. So to understand this, we need to understand that people's um, negative reactions of lashing out are more often about their own experiences, their own hurt, their own pain, than it is about you. When people lash out out of anger and say hurtful things and yell and shout and are emotionally or verbally abusive, it's because the lens that they're looking through is a lens of their own experiences of pain, of hurt, childhood trauma. It's not as much about you as it is about them. But flip that around. When I lash out, when I yell, when I say hurtful things, it is more about my own lens of my hurt 
my childhood experiences and trauma, my relationship experience, my insecurities, and it is about the other person. And when I lash out, when I'm angry, to acknowledge what, what is this saying about myself? What does this tell me about the lens that I'm looking through, my own hurt, my own trauma, my own experiences? There's a psychologist and a psychoanalyst, Henry Grayson. He's done a lot of studies uh, on relationships. And he says this kind of a bold claim that the world is full of two categories of people. He says one category is those who are able to extend love. The other person are those who are appealing to love, longing for love, wanting love, but using fear. And he says that we vacillate between those two things all the time. He says that when somebody is angry, what's underneath that anger, he claims, is fear. That's the root of the anger. And if I can be super cheesy, Yoda. perhaps the wisest psychologist and relationship <laughs> counselor in the universe. George Lucas was wise when he wrote that line, fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate, hate leads to suffering. Yeah, it's cheesy, but there's some truth there, according to Dr. Grayson. Fear leads to anger. Whenever somebody is lashing out and yelling and screaming and shouting and they're saying mean things, instead, he says, of seeing them as in just horrible, angry, mean monster. Look at the root. That is one scared little child in there, and they don't know what to do with that fear, and it's coming out as anger. So change your perception of the other person. They're scared. Once we change our perception of the person, he says, then we can act more out of compassion and understanding love. We can see their hurt, see their pain. So Dr. Grayson says, when we are in a moment of conflict with anyone, a um, romantic relationship or a friend or coworker or family, and it's heated and it's intense, he says, ask this question, is it love coming from this person? Is what I'm getting from them love? He says, if it's not love, it's fear, and they are scared. So then, okay, I mean, now I know how to respond. They're coming at me with fear. How do I give them love and help that they're really wanting? They just don't know how to say it. They don't know how to say, I need this right now. They're saying, you always do this. Turn it around. How do we offer love in that moment? First John says, there is no room in love for fear. Well-formed love banishes fear. It is not allowed. Since fear is crippling, a fearful life, fear of death, fear of judgment is one not yet fully formed in love. A guy by the name of Gordon McDonald interviewed a couple who was in their 90s, had been married for almost 70 years. McDonald asked if they still fought after all these years of marriage in their 90s. And uh, Paul said, oh, sure we do. Yesterday morning was case in point. He said, Edith and I were in her car and I was driving and she failed to stop the stop sign. Drove right through it and scared me half to death. 
McDonald asked, what did you do? Paul said, well, I've loved Edith for all these years, and I've, I've learned how to say hard things to her. But I have to be careful, because when Edith was a little girl, her father always spoke to her harshly. So today, whenever she hears a man's voice in anger, even my voice, she is deeply, deeply hurt. The interviewer says, even after all of these years, she goes back to those childhood feelings. And Paul said, even more so now than she did in the past. So he said, well, what did you do? Darling, after we've had our nap this afternoon, I'd like to talk to you about something if I could. And after the nap was over, I did. I, I said I was calm. And at that moment, she was ready to listen, and we talked about his fear, and we solved the problem. But Paul learned that throughout their marriage, conflict is necessary. It's, it can be even productive, but it has to be managed and handled a certain way with wisdom. And he understood that if he doesn't respond with gentleness, then his wife would experience the same trauma she felt as a child 80-something years ago when her father was verbally abusive to her. Come at it with gentleness. We'd understand what the other person's hurts are, the lens that they're seeing the conflict. I hope by the time I'm 90 years old that I have the same response that Paul did. I still have 60 years to work on it. Our reactions in moments of anger stem from some deep-rooted stuff. It hurts. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the type nines, Jesus says. <laughs> no, he didn't say that. He said, we're all the ones who are to be peacemakers. And the peacemakers are not the ones who run away from conflict and avoid it and keep the peace. Peacemakers are the ones that are diving into the conflict and bringing peace out of it, handling that conflict in a way that brings peace and compassion and love. Blessed, happy are the peacemakers. Dalai Lama says, if you want others to be happy, practice compassion. If you want to be happy, practice compassion both situations. Maybe this is why Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who hurt you. Because Jesus understood that deep truth that when someone is hurting someone else, the one who is the cause of the hurt is also hurting. Jesus maybe understood that when you show love to them, it begins to heal that hurt. It stops the cycle of abuse of violence, of discrimination, of prejudice. We change our perspective. So when someone is angry and lashing out and they look like this scary ogre monster, just picture them like a sad, scared little puppy. <laughs> just change how we perceive them. When someone is lashing out, see the fear and the hurt and have compassion. And when you are lashing out and angry, See the fear and hurt in yourself and have some compassion on yourself. 
when you're angry.